This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Two thousand and seventeen marks the centennial anniversary since we first split the atom. I'm your host, Mark Dorton, and on this episode of the Science Academy podcast, we will go beyond the atom to learn how they were found and what they are made of. We will travel back in time to when the first atom was separated and how we can use an atom to create energy, which we'll go through more in detail shortly. Our understanding of atom was very different 100 years ago, but it improved dramatically and significantly thanks to a Nobel Prize-winning scientist, Ernest Rutherford, his findings were so groundbreaking that the element 104, Rutherfordium, in the periodic table was named after him. Before we get on to Rutherford's discoveries, let me first tell you about J.J. Thomson's plum pudding model, where Rutherford based his studies of atom, in which he eventually proved Thomson's model of atom to be incorrect. Thomson was aware that atom had a net neutral charge. As a result, he reasoned in his investigation that there must be a source of positive charge inside the atom to offset the negatively charged electrons, in which after he proposed that atoms could be represented as negatively charged particles floating in a soup of diffuse positive charge. This model is often called the plum pudding model of atom due to the fact that its description is similar to a plum pudding. With what Thomson knew about the atomic structure, this model can seem a little far-fetched. Fortunately, Scientists continue to study the composition of atom, including checking the accuracy of Thomson's plum pudding model. Eleven years later, a New Zealand physicist, Ernest Rutherford, performed several investigations at the University of Cambridge and made the next big atomic discovery. He found the nucleus. In 1899, Ernest Rutherford had discovered the element that gives up positively charged particles, which he named alpha particles. Years had gone past. And in 1911, he used alpha particles to study atoms. In his investigation of atoms, he aimed a beam of alpha particles at a very thin sheet of gold foil, in which he placed a screen kind of material that glows when, when the alpha particle hits it. Rutherford hypothesized that if J.J. Thompson's plum pudding model was correct, the alpha particles should divert a little as they pass through the gold foil. But why is this so? While Rutherford's well, the answer to that are the positive portion of the gold foil will repel the positive alpha particles marginally, which allows the alpha particles to deviate or swerve from their original path. Yet Rutherford was in for a treat. A great number of Rutherford's alpha particles traveled straight through the foil as if they were being vacuumed or pulled. Surprisingly though, a few of the alpha particles bounced out from the foil as if they had hit a brick. This is known as backscattering, which only occurred in very small region near the center point of the gold atom. Throughout Ernest Rutherford's investigation, it meant that Thompson's plum pudding model was incorrect, as positive charge isn't distributed evenly in an atom. In fact, they're all cramped in the small nucleus, located in the very center of the atom. In the late 19th century, scientists had established on what their understanding of atom is. One notable scientist, John Dalton, reintroduced the idea of atom in the 1800s in which he studied the properties of compounds and gases. Dalton did many remarkable investigations. Dalton did many remarkable investigations, one of which was studying the pressure of gas. 
in which he concluded that gas consists of tiny particles in constant motion. He also studied the properties of compounds and concluded that elements always consist of the same ratio. Enough about Dalton's discovery. And let me tell you about what our understanding of atom is to this day, in which I think many of you has a grasp understanding about it. As I mentioned earlier, our understanding of atom was very different 100 years ago, but have changed dramatically and significantly throughout the years. Nowadays, our understanding of atoms state that atoms of one element are the same, but atoms of different elements are different. What exactly makes the atom of different element different? The primary characteristic that all atoms of the same element share the same amount of proton. Let's take hydrogen for example. Hydrogen consists of only one proton in its nucleus, and iron consists of 26 protons in its nucleus. This number of protons is so important to know of an atom, which is called the atomic number. Therefore, hydrogen has an atomic number of 1, and iron has an atomic number of 26, with their own characteristic and use. Now that I have talked about what our understanding of atom is to this day, what about the nucleus? Now that I have talked about the protons, what about the nucleus? The nucleus where most of the positive region of charged atoms are located. Nucleus consists of two types, which I mentioned earlier, that is crammed in the center of the atom. I will now let my chemistry teacher, Mr. Nishanbir Singh, to elaborate more on the nucleus. Scientists yeah. thought that the most fundamental building block of matter was um, a particle called an atom. Now we know that the atom is made up of smaller pieces known as subatomic particles. Every atom contains a very small dense central core called the nucleus. Apart from hydrogen, the nucleus of every other atom is made up of particles called protons and neutrons. The nucleus is surrounded by mostly empty space except for a very tiny, a tiny space called electrons that orbit the nucleus. One way to picture the, the hydrogen atom is um, to think about a large stadium. Imagine a grain of rice placed in the center field uh, of the field. This represents the nucleus. The outer row of seats in the stadium is the limit of the electron's influence. The rest of the atom is empty space. The, the electron seems to be everywhere at once, like the seats surrounding the playing area. Scientists now believe that protons and neutrons are made up of even smaller particles called quarks. Quarks are thought to come in a variety of forms. Protons and um, neutrons are thought to be each made up of three quarks arranged in a slightly different way. The quarks are bounded very tightly together by another type of particle called a gluon. The gluons effectively glue the quarks together. Gluons are thought to be responsible for the strong nuclear force that binds the nuclear together. They are called force carrier particles. Therefore, we can say that quarks make up protons and neutrons. They make up nucleus with electrons in it. They make up um, an atom which makes up uh, matter. In terms of size, picture a large city like Christchurch with people moving in center city square. The outer boundary of the city is the limit of the atom. The central city square is the nucleus. The people in the city square are the protons and neutrons. Freckles on the faces of the people are the quarks. Today, physicists um, 
don't know of anything smaller than quarks and electrons, but they don't know for sure whether these are the simplest building blocks of matter. While we can't see the particles themselves, physicists have designed uh, ingenious experiments that allow them to see the paths or tracks of moving particles. Just as skid marks on a road can tell you about a car's behavior just before an accident, particle tracks tell scientists a lot about how the building blocks of matter behave. In fact, particle tracking has allowed physicists to identify more than a hundred different kind of particles and um, learn important information about them, such as their size and mass, how they interact with other particles and their role in the universe. Now that we know more about the atom, and I have mentioned at the start that we can use atom to create energy, I did an interview with my physics teacher, Mr. Carl Pester, last week and asked him how does a fission reactor work? Kia ora, Mark. Thank you for having me here today. Nuclear fission reactors. Um, the purpose of uh, having a reactor in the first place, of course, is to make energy, and the energy we want to turn into electrical energy to produce, to, to use in our households, etc., in our businesses and industries. Traditionally, of course, um, we've used coal burning stations and the they function on the basis of heating up water, turning it into steam, using that steam to drive turbines, which then drive generators and make electricity. Now, the modern nuclear reactor is actually using the same old technology. It creates heat, which turns, is used to turn water to steam, and then that steam drives the turbines and runs the generators, and you get the electricity. So it's the same principle. It's just a method of getting the heat that is different. So a nuclear reactor works on the principle of energy getting released when a nuclear reaction occurs. Now, when a nuclear reaction occurs that gives us heat, we have a situation where we actually have our products, if we want to use that term, they actually lose mass during the reaction process. So in the case of the standard nuclear reactors that we use now, the fission reactors, we start off with a uranium uh, material and the uranium uh, fissions splits into um, two components, um, xenon and strontium, I think, from memory. And those two components, when you add their masses together, they're actually less than the mass of the original uranium you started with. Now, Einstein told us that um, matter is really just a condensed form of energy and it has an energy equivalence to it, so that if you lose some matter you get some energy back. And he gave us the calculation method for that using the famous equation we all know, E equals mc squared. And you can calculate the number of uh, joules of energy that you get when a nuclear reaction happens. So you've got the uranium in there and the idea is to get it to split up into two components where those two components are slightly lighter, only slightly lighter than the original uranium. And then the lost mass is effectively turned into energy and that energy is then the heat you want that you can then heat the water with and get the steam and away you go. So how does it work? So you start with uranium-235 and you, the idea is that you have to make it split and, and uranium-235-235 is stable. So what we do is we bombard the uranium-235 with neutrons and when a neutron uh, hits the nucleus of uranium-235 it can it sometimes get absorbed into the nucleus itself. And that creates a new isotope of uranium, uranium-236. That isotope is unstable. 
and that isotope will split into two components which will be lighter than the original mass and so that's how we make it happen now not only do you get those two components that I mentioned the xenon and strontium if I'm remembering the components correctly but you also get a couple of neutrons being released so those two neutrons that are released with a lot of kinetic energy they will travel until they hit another nucleus of uranium-235 and the whole process is repeated so you start off with theoretically one neutron getting absorbed by a 235 uranium isotope and that turns it into a 236, 236 isotope which is unstable and that splits in half and gives out two neutrons which then go racing off and hopefully collide with two other nuclei and will cause them to transmute into the 236 isotope and they all split and give off two each so now you've got four neutrons racing out and so it's a it's a growing reaction now we first had this reaction not in nuclear power plants we first had this reaction in nuclear bombs and what happened was of course once you've got one neutron producing two producing four producing eight etc um, that reaction happened very quickly and uh, all the energy is released really really quickly from all of that and that's an exploding nuclear bomb that's what nuclear bombs were uh, so once they had that technology working they thought well how can we harness all of this nuclear energy and so they decided that the logical way would be to control the neutrons if you could control the rate at which the neutrons were reaching nuclei and triggering that effect then you could slow down the process enough so it was no longer an exploding bomb but it was just a heat generating system and that's what power, nuclear power plants nuclear fusion power plants are and they control the neutrons by having some absorbing material in amongst the uranium so you have, they have columns of things like boron I think it's the common one that I know about anyway and you um, lower the boron rods in amongst the uranium and the boron absorbs the neutrons harmlessly and prevents them reaching the uranium nuclei and stops that process happening so if you want more heat of course you take the boron rods out a wee bit if you want less heat you put the boron rods in a bit more the heat is how do you get the heat to where you need it to turn into steam well the, the um, whole process the whole core is cooled with water it's kept uh, it's used to heat water you run water through the whole system and the water becomes very hot with the heat there and turns into well it doesn't turn into steam actually it's a completely sealed pressurized container um, and it goes through a heat exchanger which is another set of coils with another lot of water in it it's to keep the radioactivity out of the equation a bit to keep it all localized so that the heat from that water is going through another water system and that water system then it, the heat turns the water into steam and you get the steam pressure and you get the turbine spinning and you get the electricity being generated as they spun by the generators are spun by the turbines uh, if you need more heat of course you lift the rods up and you make more the water get hotter faster and you get more steam and you get more electricity out the other end if you're getting too much heat and it's unsafe and temperature's going up, push the rods down, slow the process down. And of course there's a problem, there's a potential for disaster of course, and that's we have had nuclear disasters before, where something goes wrong with the system controlling it. Maybe the water supply um, springs a leak and you haven't got the cooling water in there. So the whole thing overheats and melts and becomes a great big mess pile of uranium transmuting, breaking down, radio, uh, act, actively changing in from one to the next and uh, just goes on and on for ages and melts a big hole in the ground, basically ruins your whole plant. 
and the other one of course is if you're not stopping the water but if you the rods jam the system doesn't work you can't activate them put them back in place and then the whole thing can run away temperature wise and you've got another disaster in your hands all modern nuclear power plants have multiple securities multiple um, protection systems um, so if one fails the second one will activate if that one fails the third one will activate they usually have three layers to my knowledge to, to protect the system once the uh, steam is generated and drives the turbines and you get the electricity, that steam is then, that water is then is condensed down again and then sent back through the whole system again. So it's it's self it's all contained. It's not released in the environment. But we need a second um, heat exchanger system to remove the heat from the steam to cool it down back to liquid water, so it could then be put through to collect more heat out of the power plant to get more electricity. And uh, some power plants use, they build themselves next to a river and they use the river water to cool their secondary water. Uh, other power plants use great big cooling towers and they spray the water inside the towers, run it down to each of the towers and that cools the water down to a, a cooler temperature that you can then put through the system again. So continually putting more and more, pulling more and more heat out of the system to allow that uh, generation of more and more electricity from the steam that's created. Um, so that's basically, that's in a nutshell, that's what the process is for a nuclear power plant and how it works. It uses the fission of uranium to create heat because of the lost mass. Uh, the heat is used to produce steam, and the steam and pressure is used to drive turbines, which are connected to generators, which then generate the electricity. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.